So hear the word of God from Genesis chapters 10 and 11. And you can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtikah. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and that is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalna in Shinar. And from that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kalah, which is the great city. Egypt was the father of the Ludites, Anamites, Lahabites, Naphtahites, Pathrusites, Kazlahites, from whom the Philistines came, and the Kaphtarites. And Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zemorites, and Hamathites. Later, the Canaanite clan scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon towards Gerar as far as Gaza, and then towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim as far as Leshah. And these are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. Sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. And Joktan was the father of Almadad, Shalef, Hazarmaveth, <laughs> Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abamel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. And these were the sons of Joktan. The region where they lived stretched from Misha towards Sephar in the eastern hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And so the Lord scattered them from, where, from there over the, over the earth and they stopped building the city. And that is why it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the account of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Afarxad. And after he became the father of Afarxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. 
When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And this is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. And while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abraham and Nahor both married. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, and she was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. And Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abraham, Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there, and Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, David. Again, a long list of names. Praise God for his word, even the long list of names. Well, good morning. I'm Danny. I am one of the pastors here at Waypoint, and I have a handout. So it's coming around. So I know some of y'all look forward to my handouts, but it's, it's hard to teach the Old Testament sometimes without a handout. Um, so I want to give you all a visual. Now, don't, don't look ahead too much because you might spoil what's ahead or you might not pay attention to what I'm saying. So probably the latter. Well, I'm glad to be with you. Uh, we are in a sermon series going through the Torah, which is the Hebrew word for law or instruction. It refers to the collection of the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes it's called the Law of Moses. It's also called the Pentateuch, which is based on the Greek word pente, which means five. So we're at the end of the first major section of Genesis. This section is the origin story. The origin story of creation and the origin story of humanity with a specific focus on the people that are the ancestors of Abraham which is Abram, God changes his name, that David read in the account uh, from Genesis 10 and 11 just, just a moment ago. So for this morning, I'm gonna answer four questions. How did we get here? How did we get to the point, to this point in the account of the story? Two, what's going on in the story at this point? Three, where does this fit into the bigger story of the Bible and God's redemptive plan? Right? We're Christians, we're followers of Christ, so where does, this, where does Christ fit into this? What does this mean for us today is the last thing. So let's, let's dive right in. How did we get here? Let me grab some water. And more specifically, how did we get to this point, get to the point of the account where people are building a tower sandwiched between two long lists of names that kind of repeat themselves? So if this is the Word of God and this is what God gave us, why is there this long list of names after the flood? Then there's this account of this, this tower that they build in the city, and then it goes back to another list, which is part of the previous list. And even the first list talks about the account after the tower, after they're scattered at the tower. So that, that's, that's where we're at right now. So how did we get here? So I want to ask you a question. Have you ever sat next to someone watching a show or movie, and they didn't know the backstory, and they ask you a ton of questions? My kids hate this. Like, I'm a little cheesy, I guess, and sometimes they'll be watching some cheesy Disney show, 
And I'll be like, who's that? Is that his dad? Is that his brother? And they're like, and it's not even like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. I mean, it's just like a, a, a Disney show from the 90s. They're just watching To Kill Time and I'm asking him all these questions. Now, is that girl dating that guy? Now, wh wasn't she with, you know, and they're like, dad, either watch the show or leave us alone, you know? <laughs> uh, how many of you think this is really annoying? Survey. How many of you just ignore the per my son right here? How many of you just ignore the person and kind of can just focus in on the... Um, how many of you answer the question while the movie's still playing and you know you're just going to miss parts of it? You're just that type. You might even whisper in the movie theater. This is... How many of you uh, comment and give backstory even if the person doesn't want it? <laughs> Sorry. That's teacher, parent. I don't know. Uh, how many of you stop the movie and pause and then explain everything they need to know to catch up? Some of us. Okay, so we got the whole gamut. So I believe that Genesis 1, 1 through 11, Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is God catching his people up. And then Genesis 12 through 50 catches them up in more specific detail. I believe God's word is perfect and it's all we need for faith and practice to know him and serve him and live for him. So if this is how God presents the account, I believe it is exactly what the original audience needed and exactly what we need to know to be about God and to be his people. Sound good? Can I get an amen? So this is, this is what we got. This is God pushed pause and told him the backstory. So let me push pause and catch us up. So who's the original audience? It's the people that Moses, God has lifted them up and Moses is delivering them from slavery in Egypt. 400 years they were in Egypt and their recent history, they, they actually became slaves of the Egyptians. So they're coming out of Egypt. Uh, so whose worldview do you think they had living 400 years among the Egyptians? Egyptian worldview, right? What, what kind of worldview did they prescribe to? Who, what directed their thinking? The powerful people with vast armies, these, this powerful people that they're among with this vast army and technology and cities. And they're 400 years removed from Joseph and his 11 brothers who originally left their homeland during a famine to, to come to Egypt. Plus, they did not know their own full origin story of how God created the universe and ordered the cosmos and created humanity. In actuality, I would guess that the average Hebrew person living in Egypt at the time would have believed that the God of their ancestors 400 years ago, that God that came with them, must not be real because they're in slavery and the Egyptian people and their gods had all the power and seemed to have the favor of God. I can't confirm this, but I, I can speculate and I, I think it's probably true because I know even when we have the favor of God, we turn to other things. So if they, everything they see around them says this is the... Wow, look at all this stuff. I, I'm pretty sure that they would struggle believing in this 400-year, you know, stories of Joseph and, and, and Abraham that, that, came, that were passed down to them. So, that's, so, so they have this little bit of an origin story in their, in their history, and then they have all this Egyptian mythology and culture all around them. And then God gives them Genesis. He pulls them out of Egypt and Moses begins to reveal what we call the Torah. The, the, they get these stories, these accounts. 
and he, God tells them their origin story. All right, let's play Waypoint Bingo. Get your hand, hand out out. Every time I have a handout or have a long passage, I'll check off Waypoint Bingo, right, Pastor Danny? So I did both this morning, so, and I read a long list of names. So let's get your hand out, and I want you to start just thinking about how we got here. So start with this one that says the 10 books of Genesis. So Pastor Lawrence preached on the first part, which is the prologue. And most scholars would divide Genesis into 10 books because that's how it's divided itself. 10 times in the book of Genesis, after the prologue, it says, this is the account of. If you have an ESV or a more literal Bible translation, it'll say, these are the genealogies of. It'll say, this is the genealogy of the heavens and the earth. And it'll go from what we now call chapter 2, verse 4 to 4, 26. They, they didn't have original chapter breaks in the, in the original uh, Hebrew, Hebrew manuscripts. Uh, so these are, these are the 10 books. And if you look, book 1, book 2, book 3, we've already covered. And then this morning we're, we're covering book 4 and, and book 5. Even, even in, we read a little bit into book 6. And you can see uh, it goes very quickly from the prologue to book four. And then book, book four actually has two acts. And then if you, when you get to book six, I didn't go there, but there's lots of acts and lots of scenes. So Genesis eleven twenty seven, book six through the end, book 10, covers things in a lot more detail. So it's not just the book. It's, it's act, scene, scene, act, scene, scene, scene. And we'll see that as Pastor Lawrence, myself, and Eric continue to preach through this, and as you do your Bible reading plan, and as we come together as small groups to study Genesis. So you see where we are in the, the account. Then I want you to go to the other side, flip it over. And this is from Bruce Waltke. He's a professor, and actually he also wrote, he, this, this 10 books is his too, on the other side. And he shows, this chart shows man's sin and God's grace in Genesis 1 through 11. And I'd love for you to go back and, and look at this more closely this week. But you see, there's a rule, a rule of God's grace for Adam and Eve, for Cain and Abel, for Noah, and for the people at the time of Babel. And there's a rebellion against God, there's a judgment, and there's this mitigation of grace where God redeems it. And that's the pattern. So that's how we get to where we are. So this is covering thousands of years of history, and it's covering it in just 11 chapters. You can read it in less than 30 minutes. This is how we get to this point. So what's going on in the story at this point? So I was gonna sum it up, but then I found this, this account, I mean, this summary from Gordon Wenham. He's an Old Testament scholar, Genesis scholar. And he sums up the Tower of Babel like this. So you can stop reading your paper so you don't get distracted. All right. This short tale, this is about the Babel account and the, the list of names before it and after it, brings the history of the period before the patriarchs, before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, to a horrifying conclusion. The new start given to the human race by Noah had been already jeopardized by his drunkenness and Ham's indiscretion. Pastor Lawrence preached on this last week. If you, if you didn't listen to it, you can go back. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to the sermon uh, online. It's, he he kind of sets the stage of, of where the flood fits in this account. 
And in the table of nations, this long list of names we just read, the effects of the curse on Ham's descendants has already been hinted at. Indeed, they have already anticipated the divisions by languages and the dispersal of nations. But now Genesis deals with this explicitly. Human sinfulness now bursts all limits as man tried to trespass on God's realm by building a skyscraper temple. Um, look at this image. So these are two projected images of what it might look like. It might have been round or it might have been a little more square. By trying to build this skyscraper temple. Now remember, they're doing this with recent memory of God destroying the whole earth with the flood of judgment. And they only exist, they're only there, because their ancestor Noah honored and trusted God. So the building of this temple tower prompted another great judgment affecting the whole human race. Mankind was scattered across, across the face of the earth and linguistic diversity, which impedes cooperation between people, was introduced to prevent any further human efforts to storm heaven. Thus the stage was set for yet one more fresh start for mankind, the call of Abraham. The Tower of Babel, however, is not just another sin and judgment story that make up chapters 1 through 11. All through these chapters, we see the implied, implied critique of the polytheistic, the many-God worldview of Israel's contemporaries. Now remember, they're getting this while they live in Egypt, which is polytheistic, and they're going into a polytheistic land where there's... And all the people in the land that they're going are all the people's, the descendants of the people on the list. So, but so far, the critique of this polytheistic, this worship of many gods worldview has been limited. But it's very explicit here. So think about that. They are a people who are now told that there's just one God and this is how he was created and this is how he did everything. And they've been living in this polytheistic Egypt and they're heading toward another culture with lots of different worldviews. God is preparing them. He's telling them the truth of who they are and who he is and how God created everything and how sin broke it, destroyed it all, and is still destroying it all. But who they are to be when they go to this new place. So back to Wenham's summary. Babylon was famed for its, its temple tower whose foundations were in the underworld and, and whose top was in the heavens. So they literally thought that they built something so great that it went down to the underworld and it went all the way up to the heavens. It was probably the tallest thing around. It's the grandest thing around. Have any of y'all ever seen the, you go online and you're like the tallest building in the world? It's pretty fascinating, like every couple years. And there's even some projected ones that are gonna be built. And like the antenna gives it so much, you know, but everybody wants to be just a little taller than the last guy, right? Every, you know, just greater and greater. And they, they had this idea. And uh, no, Genesis says, so far from reaching heaven. Babel's tower could hardly be seen from there. Yeah, actually, in the original Hebrew, it's almost like the Lord had to come down. He had to look. Oh, what is that little thing down there? You know, it's, 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 there is a little bit of humor in the original language. And in their language, Babel meant gate of God. And Babel considered itself closer to God than anywhere else on earth. It regarded itself as the religious, intellectual, and cultural capital of the ancient world. The showpiece of human civilization. But in 1.9, the word changes its meaning to mean confusion or folly. Babel does not mean gate of God, but confusion or folly and far from human wisdom. 
Babel's ruined temple tower shows human impotence before the judgment of God. Put in modern terms, the building of the city and tower may have seen as a human bid for self-achieved security on the basis of technological progress. But God showed them, just trust me. They wanted to show that they are like gods, that their temple reaches to the heaven, that their name is great, and they should be known as greatest on all the earth. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city. Now, this is the descendants of who? Of, it's the descendants of all three. Probably all three of Noah's sons are in on this. Descendants of all of them. But it's sandwiched in like the Shem section. And Shem actually in Hebrew means name. Same word. Shem means name. So like almost like God, Abraham named his son the name that became the word name. And then they want to make a name. For, I mean, not Abraham. Noah names his son the name that becomes name. And they want to make a name for themselves. But they already had a name. So we're, you, it's, there's a lot of Hebrew humor in here. Like God is, is kind of, when Moses is giving this to the people, they're noticing the humor. And there's even some other rhyming words in there. So, so God is telling them their, their origin story. He's trying to give them the background so that they can know who they are. Every, everybody has to come to their parents at some point and say, who are we? Mom and dad, right? Every kid wants to know. Now people do DNA testing. Everybody kind of wants to know where you came from, like a little bit. Nobody wants to just be like, all of a sudden I just showed up. All, all of us want to know who we are, where we came from. Some people more than others. I'm kind of a history buff, so I'm really, I, re I really, really like this. But, but everybody wants to know who you are, where you came from, and what your name means. So Moses is giving them this, and they get to this account, and, they, and, the, and so these are the descendants of the three sons. We don't know exactly which people were in the city, but, it, but definitely some of Shem, the good ones, were in this city. And they say, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll, we will be scattered all over the face of the earth. Now, where did they know that, they would, that, that being scattered over the face of the earth was a good idea? That was the command given to Noah to go, to spread. So the, Moses here is showing us that they knew, they knew a little enough to know that what they were doing was what, not what they were supposed to be doing. But then the story just ends. I mean, it doesn't go into more detail. That's all we need to know is that they knew that they shouldn't have been doing it. And they were like, we're going we're gonna to take over. We got this, God. Any of you ever do that? I do that. <laughs> Thanks, God. Thanks for your help. I'll take it from here. Thanks for showing me what a brick is and what tar is. I got it. I don't need you anymore. I'll call you when I'm in trouble, when the building starts collapsing, and then say, why didn't you help me? You know, that's who we are. So they wanted to make a name for themselves. Um, this great, the great and merciful God who saved their family from the flood, but instead they wanted to do everything for their own security and self-determination, not at all trusting the God of their ancestor Noah. God's forcing to spread them out was part of his mercy on them. It was part of their original, what they were, after the flood, this is what they were supposed to do. And because of his mercy and covenant promise he made to Noah, he doesn't destroy them like he did at the flood. So let's look back on our sheet and this one column where it says man's sin and God's grace. Look at Babel. So what was the rule? What did God command Noah? The same command he gave Adam and Eve to, to spread, to fill the earth and to really to bring God's name everywhere. Don't you think the people that just saw God destroy everything 
would be the kind of people that would be like, yeah, our God is great. He's powerful. I'm thankful that he saved, you know, he saved my grandfather, my great-grandfather. But for some reason, they just forget it and they just become like the people before the flood. Now, we think we're different. A lot of people say, tell me, I just believe in God if I could get a sign or something. But the Bible shows us over and over again that even those who get blessed and get the sign, look at David, he got everything and he fell. So it's not enough just to get it all, to have the money, the pride, the name, the fame. These stories, these accounts show us over and over again that we have to trust God. That when we get a little bit, we're, we're going to build our own temple. They had access to God. Noah should have shown his kids, who showed their kids, the way to have access to God and his covenant promise. But they missed it. And God, in his mercy, begins a program to redeem them. And it starts by him spreading them out. You can read through this, um, you know, rule, rebellion, judgment, mitigation. This last paragraph, I'm going to read it out loud. Follow along. Their evil brings God's just judgment upon them. Their alienation from God leads to their alienation from each other until eventually they are scattered into separate, divided, separate nations with divided languages. Brother against brother becomes nation against nation, a turbulence that still continues. The last world war of many nations led to 50 million deaths. God's grace, however, will not let his people entirely destroy themselves. While humanity was still in the Garden of Eden, he planted a seed of hope from the woman. One will come who will defeat evil. Out of the nations, God will call one nation to be his special people to bring salvation to all nations. Book five is God's gracious response to humanity's failures, failure at the Tower of Babel. Shem's seed preserves the line of blessing that will lead to Abraham. Abraham initiates the new innovation in history the one nation that will bless the nations and ultimately give us Jesus. Now, okay, we've looked at how do we get here? What's going on? This Tower of Babel account. Uh, now, where does this fit into the bigger story? Now, I want you to go back to your chart. So, you saw the books of Genesis and you, the, t the ten books in Genesis and you see in book four, there's the table of nations, then there's the escalation of sin in Babylon. So that's where it fits in Genesis. And you can keep... Now I want you to look at this little picture on the bottom left. It has five books. This is the Pentateuch, the Torah, the five books of the Jewish law that Moses gives the people as they come out of Egypt. Promise, Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the presence of God, the holiness of God, the testing of God, and then the renewal of the promises, Deuteronomy. So you can see where Babel fits in this. It's part of Genesis. It's part of this promise. Now go to the next, and that's from, this is from John Walton, this, uh, this diagram. I didn't identify him on the sheet. Now look on the right. This is from a guy named Vaughn Roberts who wrote a really awesome small little book. We, we're going to put it in our Waypoint library uh, called God's Big Picture. It's really, really cool. And he uses all P words. Notice in the Old Testament, the pattern of the kingdom Eden, the perish kingdom, the fall, the flood, Babel. So you see where this fits in the story? The promised kingdom, right after Babel, Abraham. And then the promised kingdom is from Abraham to Moses, which is these five books, 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And that's what we're going to study over the next couple of months here at Waypoint. Then there's the partial kingdom, Joshua to Solomon. Then the kingdom falls apart after Solomon. It gets divided. Then there's the prophesied kingdom where these prophets come and say, guys, we couldn't do it with judges. We couldn't do it with a king. We need a Messiah. We need someone who's prophet, priest, and king. And the prophets pave the way, prepare the way for the Lord. And the final prophet is John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then the New Testament comes. Jesus inaugurates it. Then there's the proclaimed kingdom, which is from Pentecost when Jesus ascends and the Spirit comes down to now. We're part of this kingdom. And one day there'll be the perfected kingdom when Jesus comes back and makes all things right and new. So you see where Babel fits in the story? It's all part of God's plan. You see how Genesis 1 through 11 fits in the story. It's all part of God's plan. And you see where we fit in the story. Look on number seven, Pentecost. Later I'm going to talk about how you ever thought about Pentecost and Babel? Similar scenarios, but God does something very differently. So I just want us to see where, where this fits in the bigger narrative. As you're reading the Bible, I hope all of you are joining us on the two-year Bible reading plan. If you're behind, we're only on week five today. So all you have to do is read Genesis, like through Genesis 26, or you can just start where we are and just catch up. And, and if you do this, we're going to read the whole Bible together in, in two years as a church. Now we're doing Old Testament and New Testament together um, each day or each week, you can, pit, you can read some from one, some from the other, according to the plan. And I'm going to tell you, when you get to some of these stories in Genesis are way worse than the stuff we've read so far. You're going to get to Lot and his daughters. You're going to get to Judah and Tamar. You're going to get to Dinah um, just, and her brothers. And that, you're going to get to some really R and R plus rated junk of sin. And we want to be here to help you through that. But we, we, we want you to see how why it's there, because it's part of this bigger narrative. You know, all the stuff you're going to read in Genesis is part of this promised kingdom that's, that God promises to Abraham, but then the sin that we see in the parish kingdom just keeps coming back, keeps coming back. All right, so now let's go to the final thing. What, do, what does this mean for us? What is the Tower of Babel account and the list of names? And then Genesis 1 through 11. If, we, if I was preaching on Romans or we were doing a series on Colossians, when we got to the end, the last person to preach that week would sum it up. Well, Genesis 1 through 11 kind of is like its own thing. You know, it's, it's, there, there is, so I want to I help sum it up, not just focus on Babel, but focus on the big picture. But it's, think about this, Genesis 1 through 11 is covering thousands of years of history and you can read it in less than 30 minutes. So God, there's something really important here and it's, 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 we need to unpack it. So I'm just going to briefly unpack it, but you guys can, on your own studies, can, can really dig deeper in this. First thing is Genesis 1 is all we need to show us our origins and the origin of creation, the origin of evil. And, broken, and the brokenness of humanity and God's plan to redeem us at the, and God's plan to redeem us in the creation. This is a C.S. Lewis type sentence. A lot of, 
lots of commas and a little confusing, but you, you can get the idea. I, I couldn't sum it up any better. But this is all we need to show us these origins of who we are and how good God is and how broken sinfulness is. There's nothing that says that the sinfulness at the time of Noah or the time of Babel can't exist today. There's nothing. There's, it, never, it doesn't like, okay, the rainbow came and then God said, okay, now these people are going to be less capable of less sin and less violence and less evil toward each other. But there's tons that keep showing us the grace of God over and over and over again. So Genesis 1 is all we need. To, it, it's, it's what God gave us to prepare us for the rest of the Bible. It's what our sinfulness and His goodness is built on. And, it, and it, everything goes back to it's going to be good again. And He always had a plan to save us and redeem us through this. Genesis 1 through 11 teaches us about our tendency uh, to all turn from God, not trust God, and to turn towards sin. Again, a choppy sentence, but I don't know how else to phrase it. Like, if some of you are really good at this kind of stuff, you can help me next time. But it just shows us that we're going to turn from God, whether it's Cain and Abel, whether it's Adam and Eve, whether it's Nimrod building the city. So the name Nimrod, which is a really cool name, but he's a really bad dude and the thing, he actually rebuilds Babylon. Even though it's in the count beforehand, the, the Babel that's built and that's kind of, they're dispersed, he rebuilds the city. And it was a great city. It's actually the city that, that they go into exile during the, the prophetic time. You know, on your chart, the Israelites actually have to go back to Babylon because of their sin. So we're going to always turn towards sin. Instead of me summing this up, I'm going to let pastor and Bible scholar Mitchell Kim sum it up. He states this about Genesis 1 through 11, particularly about the sin of Genesis 3 through 11. The fall initiates a downward spiral of sin, beginning with Cain's murder of Abel and culminating with the Tower of Babel. Sometimes sin has immediate consequences. Sometimes it does not. In chapter 3, we, see, we saw sin's immediate consequences. Adam and Eve realized they were naked, they hid from God, and God punished them for their sins. In the next major section in Genesis, we see longer-term consequences of sin, how it just seems to get worse and worse. The scope of Genesis 4 through 11 is macrocosmic, big picture. Instead of the earth being filled with representatives of God, the earth is filled with the consequences of sin. Mitchell Kim. Let me repeat that. Instead of the earth being filled with representatives of God, Genesis 1.28, right? It's filled with the consequences of sin. And we have a choice today. We're going to be representatives of God or representatives of, the, of sin. And I believe that, yes, the New Testament is awesome, but we can look back to this origin story and see everything we know. You know the story of Cain and Abel? Probably fourth chapter of the Bible. God looks at Cain and says, sin is crouching at your door. You must master it. That's as powerful today for me. This week, there was a moment where I was like, wow, God, I really want to, you know, this thing is crouching at my door. God, please help me. All of us need it. Sin is powerful, but God is better. We're going to take communion this morning. It's our time to come together twice a month and just confess the junk. 
Bill Bright, the leader of Campus Crusade, used to say, just think about it literally a spiritual breathing, like breathe out the junk. If you take a bag and put it over, if you're in an elevator for a long time or take a bag and put it over, eventually you'll die because you'll, you'll start breathing back in the stuff that you're exhaling. You got to breathe out the junk and breathe in the stuff that brings you life. And we're going to do that this morning when we take communion. We're going to do that. We're going to always remember that we want to be representatives of God and fill his, the earth with his glory and not fill the earth with the consequences of our sin. It's hard. It's really hard. Next thing we see, Genesis 1 through 11 gets us to Abraham. The scope of Genesis 4 through 11, Kim says earlier, is, is macrocosmic. Instead of the earth being filled with representatives of God, we talked about that. But nevertheless, God's grace abounds even in the faith of our sin. This is Mitchell Kim again. Glimpses of his mercy are evident amidst this microcosmic picture of the spread of sin with Seth, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And this prepares the way for the microcosmic, zeroed-in focus beginning in chapter 12 on Abraham, who will bring blessing to the nations. Now, I want you to think about this. What did they want for themselves in, at the tower? It says, so that we can make a name for ourselves, a Shem for ourselves. So Shem's descendants wanted to make a Shem for themselves. A little bit of joke, you know, Hebrew humor. But the, the original people would have got it. They would have totally got it. We have Joy here at Waypoint, and her name is Joy. And one time, Lawrence, she was talking about Joy or something, and it was fun to play with the, the name. It's fun to play with Shem, but they wanted to make a name for themselves. Thanks, Joy, for letting me use you as part of the sermon. They wanted to make a name for themselves. Listen to what God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2, and Lawrence will preach on this next week. I will make you into a great nation. So they wanted to be a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will what? Read it out loud. Make your name, make your Shem great. And you will be what? A blessing. Not a ruthless power city of man, but a blessing of God. God, we need Genesis 1 through 11 to get us to Abraham because that's how we get to Christ. We need Gen number four, we need Genesis 1:11 to point us to Christ. We absolutely need Genesis 1 through 11 to show the plan of God, the goodness of God, the sinfulness of humanity, and the relentless mercy of God to save his people. I want to show you an illustration. This is from John Walton, a New Test Old Testament scholar. So he says, he says, you can think about it like this. The Eden problem is solved by the cross. Our, the curse of sin is solved by the cross. But the Babel problem, the problem that they wanted to, to be like God and have a name, it has stars because it's, it's the covenant God makes with Abraham. And God's covenant program is how we get to the cross. God sets up a series of covenants with Abraham, then he renews it with, with his sons, and then, he, then it, it comes to Moses, and we get the law, what we're reading today. And then, it, then there's a promise of a king and David, and then... The prophets speak and Jesus comes and Jesus lives the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died so that we could be raised with him to new life and we can live with him forever. So this is why Genesis 1 through 11 is extremely important because it points us to Christ. One more thing about this. So Shem is name and Shem's seed keeps going. 
There's the, the, the word in Hebrew for child is actually seed. Same word for seed on a tree. And no matter what sin does, the seed passes from Adam. Cain tries to destroy Abel, so then Seth is born. The, sin, the seed keeps going. And it goes and it gets to Noah and then it goes to Shem. And then it goes to Abraham. And it keeps going. If you, if you read Matthew, how does Matthew start off? It says, the ge this is the genealogies of. Same word as the Hebrew. You know, this is the genealogies of. If you read Luke 3, we should have read that in our Bible reading. It goes through probably, it's most likely Mary's genealogy. And it starts at the beginning. It, go, it, it starts, goes to Adam. And it shows how the seed has come. If you look at John chapter 1, what happens in John 1? In the beginning was the Word. And then it says the Word comes down. So at Babel, God comes down and judges them. In Jesus, the Word comes down and builds a tent and His Spirit dwells among us. What they wanted at Babel, John tells us Jesus does. Final point, we need Genesis 1-5 through to remind us of our call as the church of Jesus Christ to build His kingdom and not our city. We do this by walking in his, in his grace and mercy each day. There always is sin crouching at our door. Man's city wants to surrender to sin and give, up, give in to this sin and selfishness, but God's kingdom is built and is being built on his grace. And we surrender to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. There's one thing in the Bible that tells us that does reach to the heavens. In Psalm 36, Five and six, it says, your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your justice is like the great deep. In Matthew 12, we're not going to read the whole thing, but Jesus says, Matthew says, there's a prophecy in Isaiah that's exactly about Jesus. And it's the only place, he, Matthew inserts it right in the middle of his book, so you don't miss it of his gospel account of Jesus. Mark and, and John and Luke don't do it. Don't put it in there. And it talks about this servant who he has chosen, the one that he has loved, and whom I will delight. I will put my spirit on him. And then the, at the end it says, till he has brought justice through to victory, in his name the nations will put their hope. In the name of Jesus we put our hope. We have two choices. We can live to make our name great or his name great. There's only two options. In Acts 2, well, how do we do this? By the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, Jesus ascends, and then God pours His Spirit on His people, His church. The new seed of Abraham. We're, you know, Father Abraham had many sons. We're, we're part of that. We're the new seed. We're part of that. We get grafted in to the tree. He pours His Spirit upon His church, establishes His church. Instead of language confusion, they all heard the words in their own language. The languages were unified by the power of the Spirit. New Testament scholar F.S. Bruce says about the Pentecost event, it was nothing less than a reversal of the curse of Babel. Now they could truly be His people. People who don't live for their own sinful, selfish ways, but people who seek first the kingdom of Jesus and his righteousness. Now we can truly be his people who don't live for our own sinful, selfish ways and built a tower that's going to crumble, 
You know, there's no more Tower of Babel anymore. It's crumbled. It's gone. Everything that we've ever built, all the great buildings that we've ever had and all the ones that we have now, eventually one day will crumble. But the foundation that we can have in Christ, we can seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and be filled with his spirit. So let's be people who live for his name and build his church for his glory. And let's be people who individually let the Holy Spirit convict us of sin and work in our hearts so that we can be the people who don't fall into the sin like Cain and Abel and, and Noah, but we can trust in God's grace and mercy and accept his forgiveness at this table and live for him each day. Let's live for his name and his glory. Let me pray. God, as you prepare us for communion, God, I pray that we would just recognize that we are sinful, broken people in need of your mercy. And we thank you for your mercy that saves us and sets us free. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.